You're listening to Breathe Like a Badass, the podcast for ambitious but anxious women who want to cut through overwhelm, negative self-talk, constant comparison and fear so that they can get the inner calm, clarity and focus that they need to build happy, fulfilling, freedom-filled businesses and lives that truly light them up, which is what we all want, right? I'm Hannah, your host, and I am an E slash INFP. Yes, I can be an extrovert and an introvert almost at the same time. And I live in Southwest London with my coffee, very plentiful supply of chocolate and my partner Ollie. And I use down to earth science-based meditation techniques to support women like you in creating the successful, fulfilling and incredible freedom filled life and business that you deserve. Long story short, I help you to be and love exactly who you are so that you can go out and do the work that you truly love and that really lights you up. In this podcast, I interview some absolutely incredible guests on topics ranging from meditation, mindfulness, habits, the power of routine, how to be kind to yourself and just give yourself a damn break, what it's like when you try things and fail, what it's like when you try things and actually maybe succeed, and how to take all of that hard-won life experience to become more fulfilled women, business owners, partners, friends, parents, or whatever it is that is super important and central to making our lives more meaningful, powerful, and successful, whatever that means to us. This week, I'm talking to Jessie Byer, a speaker, mental health advocate, and best-selling author of How to Heal, a practical guide to nine natural therapies you can use to release your trauma. Jessie is on a mission to help those around her feel valid, heard, and appreciated in their mental health struggles and design lives that they love waking up to. Jessie has been featured in dozens of media outlets, including Best Company, Thrive Global, and Elite Daily, and has spoken to thousands of people across the US at colleges and schools. Outside of her professional life, she is also a canine search and rescue handler and a proud pet mum. This conversation was really honest and uplifting, and we covered everything from Jessie's story from recovering from trauma and poor mental health, including running out of the building where she first had talk therapy and never going back there, to building a multifaceted career that she loves. We talked about the difference between trauma with a capital T and trauma with a little t, and how to identify if you are suffering from either. We talked about the isolation of mental health, and how talking about it can actually help break the stigma and help us all feel less alone in our struggles. How talking about trauma can help us realise that our feelings are valid, no matter how big or small the event or the feelings, and how really there is no hierarchy of suffering. We covered some of the nine natural therapies that you can use to heal trauma, including, of course, mindfulness, but also ecotherapy and canine therapy, which was super cute to talk about. We also explored how getting a successful life, in quotes, starts with ourselves and loving ourselves right where we are now. We spoke about how to meditate and get mindful in your life, even if you struggle to feel safe in your own body and can't sit still even for five seconds. 
We spoke about how spending time in nature can really help to heal your mental illness, even if you can't get outside or go on a hike, for example. And we also spoke about how to support someone else who might be suffering from trauma or poor mental health. Jessie's beautiful dog also makes an appearance, and we also spoke about how and why having dogs around might just be one of the best ways to heal. As usual, all the show notes for this episode can be found on my website, including a link to get either a signed copy of Jessie's book or download the very first three chapters completely free. That's it for the intro, now on to the show. Okay, Jesse, thanks so much for being here. Um, it's, it's really great that we've been able to connect today. I really, I really love that. We met in a Facebook group and I'm really interested in asking you about your book. Um, so thank you for being here. Yeah, thank you so much for having me. I'm excited to chat. So where are you calling in from today? Because obviously I'm in London in the UK, but where are you? I'm in Portland, Oregon, which is kind of halfway around the world. So, <laughs> Yes, and I want to absolutely congratulate you because I'm doing this at half past three in the afternoon, but I think it's a little bit earlier for you. <laughs> yeah, it's the start of the day, but it's all good. <laughs> and I am not a morning person. So when I saw that you'd booked that time in, I was very impressed. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you. I mean, I'm the type of person that's like, okay, set my alarm for 10 minutes before the thing, get up, throw the hair in a ponytail, and then we're good to go. <laughs> I love it. Same. You can tell. Yeah. Top knots, <laughs> getting stuff done. I love it. Okay, cool. So um, the first thing I want to ask is kind of a bit of a wild card question, but I do love this question. And it is, I mean, literally whatever comes to mind, what are you most obsessed with or loving or like really into at the moment? Yeah, this answer is going to say a lot about me because the very first thing that popped into my, my mind was my dog. Um, my dog is my best friend for sure. She and I are actually a canine search and rescue team together. So we work together, we play together. You know, she's my best friend. So I guess I'd say my dog for that. Oh, that's adorable. I did actually want to ask you about the search and rescue. So I love that you've brought that up kind of right off the bat. <laughs> um, what kind of dog is she? She's a Brittany, which if you're not familiar with, is a small brown and white bird dog. Oh, that's adorable. And how long have you had her? She turns two this August and I've had her since she was 12 weeks. So I've had her for her whole life. Oh my goodness. Honestly, I can tell we're going to get along because I am a dog <laughs> person. I don't have my own, which is so sad. And the only reason that I don't is because where I live right now, I'm not allowed one, but oh, I cannot wait. And I, as I say, I have a question about that later in our interview anyway. So yay. Perfect. <laughs> okay. That's awesome. So now that we've explained the dog and all of that great stuff, <laughs> let me just ask you, of course, for people that don't know, what's your story and how did you get to be doing what you're doing now and the work that you do today? Mm -hmm. So I'm a speaker, author, and mental health advocate for people who didn't do extensive stalking on me before this interview. But um, basically, my story starts kind of when I was a eighth grader, I think. That was my first speech. And I was the valedictorian of my middle school, and I was so excited, but I was so nervous that I had my friend kind of co-speech it with me, and we alternated lines, and it was atrocious. It was so bad. But that kicked off my public speaking journey, I suppose. 
And then it kind of really all started to come together when I was in high school and started to really struggle with my mental health. You know, I was depressed. I had a really bad relationship with food. I was self-harming, things like that. And I was also in this really codependent relationship with someone else who was also struggling with his mental health. Now, that relationship was something where I was like, okay, I am going to be responsible for your happiness and for keeping you alive. I'm going to do whatever it takes, which I'm sure you can guess is not the best way to approach a relationship with someone who's also struggling with his mental health. Now, that relationship unfortunately ended with his suicide attempt and my calling the police to prevent it. But that kind of year and a half before that, especially that night, and then kind of the year and a half after that as well, were just really steep in trauma for me and for mental health and just a lot of high emotions. So that kind of kicked off, I guess, my personal passion for mental health. And as I started to heal, I saw how many people were also struggling. You know, when you're in the trenches, you're not really thinking about everyone else going through the same thing. You feel really alone. You feel really isolated. And then as you start to come out of it, you have conversations with people and you're like, oh, you were struggling? I was struggling. Oh my gosh, why didn't we just talk about this, you know? So I started to see how impactful conversations could be, whether that's me sharing my story, me listening to someone's story, having a group discussion. And I was like, I can do something with this. You know, I wanted to kind of pave my own way in the entrepreneurial spirit. And so I was like, I can do something with this. What if I spoke to larger platforms? What if I was on a podcast? What if I started writing about this? So I just kind of started piecing things together until it brought me to where I am today, which again, I speak mostly on college campuses, but also some conferences. My book is about trauma healing. And I'm just a huge advocate for breaking down this stigma, connecting people to resources and helping everyone understand that whatever they're going through, it's worthy and valid of healing, no matter what they may think about it. Yeah, that's perfect. I love that kind of summary. I really love how you've managed to combine kind of a love of public speaking with a really important mental health message. And that's just so fantastic because, yeah, like you say, one of the biggest lies that poor mental health tells us when we're going through a tough time is that we're the only one and that we're alone and that everyone else has got their shit together and we're the only ones that don't and it's a lie and I always try and remember you know when I'm going through a really low mental health period I kind of try to remember that mantra like it's the it's your bad mental health talking it's not real it's not true but to have people speak about it and be open and be willing to stand on stage as I know you do and be vulnerable like that kind of it doesn't make it go away but it makes you think like oh I'm not like uniquely broken like other people mm-hmm. suffer too and that's mm-hmm. that's kind of has it kind of has a power because it means like oh we can have conversations about this like we can talk about it yeah absolutely I mean some of the schools that I've spoken at like Right before the world went into shutdown, I spoke at a really small school in rural Texas. So you can kind of imagine the culture there if anyone's familiar with Texas. Um, but some of these kids came up to me afterwards and they're like, this is the first time I've ever heard anyone talk about this and be so open about their mental health struggles. You know, whether they come from a family of tough it up and, you know, carry on through and whatever, or they just don't know about it, you know, to have someone stand on stage, not like stage is anything special, but just to put themselves out there in front of hundreds of people and say, Hey, I used to really struggle. I used to be really bad, just like you guys. And then now I'm able to get here sort of thing. For a lot of people, that's the first time they've ever heard anyone talk about that stuff and to have that privilege, but also that ability to say, it's okay to talk about this stuff. Like you said, that's, that's really, really powerful for me and for them. Something that really struck me when you were speaking was that I think as 
people like you and I that work in the mental health space, I think it's really easy for us to think like everyone knows the stuff, like everyone talks about mental health and you can't move like on my Instagram, you know, like every single post is about people talking about mental health and, and how you can meditate and it'll help and all of this. So it's really easy to think that everyone is kind of on board with it. But I think it's really important to remember, especially among young people, that actually this stuff is still taboo and there is still stigma around it. And it's not always easy to know how to start the conversation. And so for somebody like you to be able to say, like, I have gone through this and, you know, my ex-boyfriend tried to commit suicide and this is how I coped with it. I think that really touches people because it is so honest. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. And it's something that I was thinking about a lot the other day, actually. I was like, when did I first start to hear about mental health? And it certainly wasn't eighth grade. I don't think it was even when I was struggling. I think when I was in high school, I took a psychology class my senior year. And I think that was the first time that I really heard people talk about this is mental health and this is mental illness and these are some therapy options. I mean, I, I'm a Googler, so I did my own research, but I think that was the first time I really had a conversation with someone about what mental health looked like. I was a senior in high school. That wasn't that long ago, you know? And so for that to still be the culture we're living in, that's something I definitely want to try to change is having that conversation earlier, having it be part of the family discussion, you know, eat your vegetables, work out every day, make sure you're writing in your journal or whatever that looks like for you. But just having that family discussion earlier is something that I think can be really beneficial. Yeah, absolutely. And I relate so much to that. I mean, I really started realizing that my mental health was something that actually I had a responsibility to look after even later than you. So you said you were a senior in high school, but I didn't really come to that conclusion until really until after I graduated from university. I remember seeing a counselor at university just because I had a tough first year and there was a university counselor, like a lot of schools have counseling services. And I remember thinking, well, that's not for me. I'm not the kind of person that needs to go to counseling or, oh, I must keep it a secret or, oh, well, she won't be able to help me. Or it, there was still so much kind of stigma around it, even though the counseling service existed. I still remember that actually it wasn't until I even left university that I realized that I wasn't the only one that struggled. I wasn't the only one to have these feelings and thoughts and that it didn't make me weak or broken or wrong or like I couldn't cope it was just actually something that was normal and that like you say needs to be normalized as part of your like emotional toolbox mm -hmm. I see your puppy <laughs> she comes in all the time she's like hi I just need some snuggles and then I'll go back to wherever I was doing so it's kind of appropriate though because yeah you talk about canine therapy so she's coming to to be your therapy dog while you're talking about your emotional toolbox. So I kind of love yeah. that. Anyway, carry on. Perfect. Yeah, no, 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 no. It's so good. I think, I mean, I totally resonate with what you're saying too. You, there's this stigma even in the people that are breaking down the mental health stigma. So there's like the stigma of don't talk about it. It's something to be ashamed of, keep it under the rug. But then even in the people that are trying to bring it out into the light, there's kind of this misunderstanding that if you're struggling with your mental health, you're weak or you're broken, or you deserve to be treated with kid gloves and just be super gentle. And how can I help you? And oh my gosh, you're doing amazing sort of things where it's like, everyone is just another human. Everyone is just as strong. Just because you're struggling, it doesn't mean you're broken. It just means you need a little extra support and they don't need to be treated any differently or anything like that. But 
it was interesting that you chose those words specifically feeling that you were broken when you were or not broken I suppose but like that word broken specifically was like yeah that's that's something I think is even still a problem in the people that are trying to break down the mental health stigma for sure yeah a hundred percent yeah absolutely so I do want to ask you about uh like what you were talking about to do with the emotional toolbox and how you think that taking care of your mental health should just be normalized the same way as you know eat your vegetables and also do some exercise and also write in your journal and also meditate and all of this stuff which I totally agree with and I really want to ask you more about that later but first I want to introduce people to your new book which is called I'm going to read the full title because I think it's great how to heal a practical guide to nine natural therapies you can use to release your trauma so can you explain what that book is about what it includes and, and who it's for yeah, absolutely. So the book is kind of divided into three parts. The first part looks at what trauma is. So it goes through my story with trauma, it talks about some definitions and psychiatric diagnoses surrounding trauma, talks about the role your friends and family members play. It's kind of just an overview of trauma. Then the middle section is details about the nine therapies that I talk about. And I cover things like how the therapies work, what the research surrounding it is, um, you know, what happens during a therapy session, and then my experience with it, if I've had the opportunity to try out that therapy. I also include links where relevant to where to find therapists that are like licensed and certified and stuff in those specific therapies, which I think is really important as well. And then the final section, I suppose, which is just the last two chapters, looks at how to support someone else who's struggling or healing from a trauma. And then also what to do after you're quote done healing. So, okay, you've made it to the end of your healing journey. Now what, you know? So that book kind of came together as a little bit of a Bible of everything I wish I knew when I was healing from my mental health struggles, because I thought it was talk therapy or bust. You know, I thought that was your only option. And I went to one day of talk therapy and I was so uncomfortable with it that I literally ran out of the building and I never went back. And I think that if I would have had that professional support, I would have healed a lot more smoothly and then a lot more of a straight line. So I want people to know that there are other options, that some of these options are maybe better for healing trauma because of a variety of reasons. And that if talk therapy isn't for them, that's okay. You know, they can still get the help that they need and deserve. So that's kind of an overview of what it is and why it exists as well. Absolutely. So what was it about talk therapy that you think just didn't work for you? I felt very interrogated. You know, I was sitting on this couch across from someone with their notepad in front of them. And there's like this tiny little window on the wall. And I was just like, oh my God, I don't trust you. I don't know you. I don't want to open up to you. You know, I, I had a, it was like a 45 minute consultation intro session sort of thing. And in those 45 minutes, she asked me some questions about myself and then like slapped me with a diagnosis at the end. And it was like, great, you're good to go. See you next week. And I was like, what? <laughs> that just did not sit well with me and I was just fidgety and uncomfortable and it was just uh, I felt really stifled by it so I didn't think that that was really ever going to work for me but at that point you kind of thought that okay I have mental health issues I have trauma that I want to process and heal from the only way that I can do that is through basically going to what you might call a kind of traditional therapist yeah absolutely I didn't know that some of these other therapy options existed I mean sure I'd heard about meditating and journaling and spending time outdoors and things like that, which I think are all really important. But if you want that professional help, if you want that therapist on your team, I thought you had to go to talk therapy. I thought that was the only option. hundred percent. Yeah. I think that's quite common. So what was your journey towards discovering the other therapies that you talk about in your book? 
it's very unexciting, but um, I was taking a nature-based therapies class at college and I was like, okay, this is really cool because I like nature and I like spending time outdoors and oh wow, there's lots of things that can heal with this. And then I kind of started thinking, I was like, okay, what do I want to do for my capstone project? And kind of started putting this idea of a book together. So I'm pretty sure I asked that professor, I was like, what other trauma therapies are there? And she gave me a couple ideas. And then I'm pretty sure I just went to Google and was like natural trauma therapies and picked some that came up and kind of took it from there. So there wasn't this huge revelation or anything, but again, Google searching for the win gave me those therapies. Yeah, a hundred percent. I love that. I think it's so true. It's like, of course there's good and bad sides to everything. And if you Google some stuff, you're going to get a whole world of pain, but also it can be so useful to just be like, actually, I don't just have to take what I think I have, what I've been given. I can actually explore alternatives and question what I think is true And I guess it's just those limiting beliefs. Like you say, you originally thought that the only way to access therapy and any kind of professional healing was to go to talk therapy. But then actually you were like, well, this isn't working for me, so I'm going to need another option. And Mm -hmm. I think that's kind of liberating. And I, I relate to that too, in terms of even just being open to discovering a new way of being and a new way of thinking. When I was growing up, as people who listen to this podcast often will know, my story is that I basically was brought up to believe that if life was tough, you just had to be tougher, like work harder, work longer hours. And, you know, maybe de-stress at the end of the day with like half a bottle of wine. And that was about it. You know, that was like my coping strategy (laughs) that I had been taught. (laughs) And to even have the option to be like oh there is another way like other people have gone through this too like it's kind of amazing it is and that's so funny because I mean it's not funny that that's how you're brought up but that's how so many people are brought up I feel like our generation is the one that's turning the tides of oh rest days and oh work smarter not longer and oh just barreling through things is gonna not work in the long run sort of thing so I mean, so many people have had that. I was brought up similarly as you're a hard worker, you're a good person and things will turn out for you in the end. And it's like, oh no, I I worked my butt off. You know, I had everything on paper. I had the best resume in high school. And yet on the inside, this is how I felt. And I think that that is infinitely more important than your grades or your career or what type of car you drive. I think that that is kind of everything. It's the foundation for everything. Oh, a hundred percent. I completely agree. It's just so true. It's just like, even now, even when I, I'm having a bad day and I look at someone else's life and I think, gosh, I wish I had their house or I wish I had their life or I wish I had their car or I wish I, whatever, or I wish I looked like them or whatever. And it's like, actually, do you know what? You could have all of those things. And if you still feel miserable in yourself and you don't know how to sort through the pain that's in your, in your mind, it doesn't matter what you have on the outside. And I wish I had learned that earlier. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Well, how many stories do you read of super rich people or super famous people going through relationship after relationship after relationship or just feeling miserable because they have all these things, but they're so empty inside. And it's like, it's backwards. It starts with you and it starts with you loving yourself and your life exactly where you are. And then you're able to build that solid foundation of all of the good material things, or I guess relationships as well, which aren't material, but you know, all of the other things in your life, all of the good things that you want, it starts with that foundation of loving yourself where you are for right now. Totally. Absolutely. So 
Before I ask you about mindfulness and meditation, which I know is one of the nine alternatives to talk therapy that you list in your book, and I cannot wait to hear what you have to say about that, because obviously that's what I'm obsessed with. But Mm -hmm. you spoke about how the first part of your book defines trauma. And I think it's important to talk about that, because I think that trauma is a word that gets thrown around a lot. People use it for their own definition. People talk about trauma, everything from, you know, fielding an internet troll <laughs> right up to, <laughs> right up to, you know, what, what maybe people would consider to be trauma, you know, uh, suffering abuse or whatever it may be. So I don't want to put words into your mouth. How do you define trauma in this context? Mm-hmm. I define trauma as a very emotionally wrought event that sticks with you and carries with you into future days in your life. And it's very vague on purpose because for some people, um, having a car accident is really, really traumatic and they will never get behind a wheel again. And that just really sticks with them. Or for other people, they get into a car accident and they're like, whatever, and just drive away. So it really depends on your makeup and what you think is hurtful to you. But the key pieces of that is that it's way more emotions than normal. Everything is running on high alert. And also that there's a piece of that that sticks with you. You can't just conclude the event and then go about your life. It stays with you in this very somatic form. It really does hold in your body. So that's how I define trauma. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. So let's talk a bit more about what you mean by trauma is in the body, because I've heard that phrase before, and I know that that's something that your book deals with. So what does that mean, the idea that trauma is held in the body? Mm -hmm. Well, to answer that, I'm going to use a concept from dance movement therapy, which is one of the uh, therapies that I talk about. And one of the goals of dance movement therapy is this thing called completing the cycle. So imagine that you're being chased down a street by a bad guy, whatever, make that scenario, whatever you want it to be. Everything is running on high alert, right? You're breathing really hard. Your sympathetic nervous system is going crazy. You have all of these hormones running through your body. And then if you are assaulted and you can't successfully fight this person off, all of those emotions and hormones are kind of stuck in your body. You're not able to complete that cycle and release them and move through that. And that energy, it depends on the therapy and the modality about what they call it. Sometimes it's stuck energy, sometimes it's completing the cycle, but that piece that isn't able to complete that cycle, that gets stuck in your body. Now, for a lot of people, when they heal from trauma, they will literally say, I feel like a weight has been lifted from my body. I feel lighter. I feel like I'm able to move better. So that's that kind of energetic physical piece. But then also trauma, especially childhood trauma, has the potential for so many adult physiological health problems, everything from an increased risk for broken bones to cancer to liver disease to financial stress. Like there's a giant list of all these random things that trauma can cause. So people are like, oh, it's a purely psychological condition, but my back hurts all the time and I have chronic lung disease. And it's like, haha that's tied into that too. So it's very physiological as well as obviously having those psychological components. Yeah, hundred percent. That's really fascinating. Yeah. I I would really love to see more of the research on that because it sounds as if, like you say, there's such a body of work around talking about this and kind of showing the links and, and talking about it in a way that maybe we haven't before in the scientific and kind of psychological community. Could you give some ex- some more examples of what might constitute trauma? And I know you said it's intentionally vague, but mm-hmm. for example, I liked your, your example of the car crash. 
what else or what other examples are there in your book that might help people to see whether they are suffering from trauma or just to understand the concept a bit more? Mm -hmm. Well, yeah. Okay. So there's kind of these things called big T's and little T trauma. And this isn't something that I discuss explicitly in the book, but people who have read my book kind of identify one way or another. And big T traumas are the things that kind of everyone thinks about as traumatic, you know, a domestic abuse, a car accident, being assaulted, being sexually assaulted, having a child die, you know, things like that, that everyone kind of recognizes, wow, that's really, really difficult. And then your little T traumas are things like your mom or your dad making a negative remark about you over and over in your childhood or losing a pet or something hard happening that people are like, okay, yeah, I can see how that's hard, but they can add up. And depending on the person, a little T trauma could be a big T trauma. So again, your big T traumas are kind of the, you know, things like war as well, going to war, being a firefighter. Um, there's those, and then there's kind of your smaller little T traumas that can build up over time. And then there's also secondary trauma, which is witnessing trauma repeatedly and frequently in your line of work or day-to-day -day life. So people in healthcare, people in law enforcement, people in the military, whether they themselves are directly traumatized or not, they can still experience symptoms of trauma just by witnessing it over and over and over again in their career. Yeah, 100%. I get that. That makes sense. Something that really spoke to me when you were going through that list is the idea that little t trauma, so things that on their own maybe are not actually that big of a deal, or maybe some people would look at and be like, well, that's not trauma. Like, you know, your dog dying, like, come on. It's almost like, or somebody saying something to you, like you say, over the course of your childhood, but they can add up. And that I find really, what's the word? I guess really freeing and also really compassionate. This idea that actually you can call something like that trauma and in doing so, recognize the mental harm that it can cause um something that seems small on its own and actually kind of builds up over time and i think that especially for my listeners and my audience i think that that could be quite a revolutionary concept you know the idea that something that we might tell ourselves like oh why are we still worried about this why is it still affecting us why, why haven't we just like got over this already? Like how, how come this is still getting in our way? You know, like thinking about something that happened to us in high school or something that our mum said to us when we were five years old or and it's kind of like little issues that we can tell ourselves are not really that big a deal. But actually, I think it's really important to give ourselves a break and actually give ourselves grace and realize that those small things can really add up and they do deserve to be taken for like you say the trauma that they really actually are mm -hmm. I think a lot of people will look at someone who's had a big t trauma you know something really horrible happened in their lives 20 years of domestic abuse whatever that is and be like oh my dog died my feelings are completely invalid how can I even complain about what I'm going through when I look at what you've been through and that's just not a helpful mindset for anyone because you're telling yourself that your feelings are invalid, which is obviously not great, but you're also telling this other person that what they've been through is disproportionately worse than anything you could ever imagine. And it's just this horrible, awful thing. And wow, good for you for surviving it. That's not really helpful either. So I really encourage people, and this is something I talk about in the book, but just let that go. Just don't compare people's traumas. What you're going through and what they're going through is completely valid. 
we don't need the starving children in Africa argument, which is that, that, oh, other people have it so much worse, therefore I can't be bad, you know? Everyone's built differently. Everyone is affected by different things. And just because you've had accumulation of little T traumas as opposed to one big T trauma, it doesn't mean that your feelings are any less valid. Yeah, I think that's so important to say. I was listening to a podcast, I think it was with Brené Brown, her new podcast, which I'm obsessed with. Um, and she said something along the lines of there's not like a competition for mental health struggle. There's not like a hierarchy of pain. It's like, if you feel pain, then that's what you feel. And I, I think it, it makes sense to be aware of your situation and your privilege and the fact that maybe other people have suffered more or whatever. But I don't think that that in any way invalidates what you yourself are feeling. And it always brings me back to that phrase. And I'm going to have to go and search to see if there's one person that said this or if it's just a general, a general phrase. But it's this idea that if you have a broken arm and somebody sitting next to you has a broken arm and a broken leg, it doesn't mean that your arm hurts any less just because someone else has, is suffering more. And I think that that's so important to realize, especially with mental health, because it can be so invisible and it can be so isolating. And I think also in Buddhism as well, I talk about this idea a lot. It's that there's the first arrow, which is the suffering itself. And then the second arrow, which is the feeling bad about feeling bad. And that makes everything worse. And I think it's just so important to highlight that because honestly, you know, the first time that I heard that, the first time I heard somebody say, just because someone else has objectively worse pain than you doesn't make your pain invalid. And to me, that was like totally revolutionary and it completely opened my eyes to like, oh, I am allowed to like ask for help. Whoa, <laughs> who knew? Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. And I've heard a similar saying to the one that you did with your broken arm. And again, I don't know if someone specific said this or not, but the person who drowned in one foot of water and the person who drowned in 20 feet of water are both dead. And that is something that I do mention in my book. And that just hit me because it's like, yeah, wow, that's so true. It doesn't matter whether you were thrown off a waterfall or you fell in a puddle, like you're still struggling. And, and that just really, you know, reminded me of that phrase, which is something that really resonated with me too. Yeah, a hundred percent. And just to finish that point, I think as well, I often say, you don't have to feel like you have to hit absolute rock bottom before you seek help, before you look for therapy, before you consider that there might be another way to like do life. You know, you don't have to kind of, <laughs> you don't have to be so anxious and depressed that you can't get out of bed before you start to kind of consider asking for help. And I think that's so important for people to hear as well. And I think if I had heard that like five years earlier than I did, I think I would have got help and felt better a lot sooner. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm, absolutely. I think that's a, a common misconception as well is that people think that therapy is only for people with psychiatric diagnoses or with people who are really, really struggling. But there's so many people that go to therapy because they're stressed at work or their husband is annoying them or whatever that is, all of these things that are not, you know, that are troublesome, but they're not these horrible life events or big diagnoses or something like that. So go to therapy because you're stressed, go to therapy because there weren't apples at the grocery store that you wanted. I don't care what it is, but if you get that help, like you said, before you hit rock bottom, it's going to save you a lot of pain along the way. Totally. And it reminds me of, um, 
is it Jada and Will Smith who talk about going to marriage counseling before they get to the point where they actually need it? Yes. Oh my gosh, that's such a good example. I, I love that. Yeah, like I kind of love that idea. It's like we're going to marriage counseling so that we don't actually need it, if that makes sense. I kind of love that. Oh, yeah. The same. It's the same for therapy, I feel. Preventative, you know. Absolutely. I mean, you get vaccinated, you get, you have your annual checkups at the doctor, like you do all that and you're not broken or sick. So why don't you do the same for your mental health? Totally. Love it. Okay. The big question, mindfulness and meditation is (laughs) one of (laughs) the nine alternatives to talk therapy listed on your, on your list in your book. So tell me, tell me, how does it help? What do you mean when you say mindfulness and meditation? How does that show up in your life? And how does it help? How does it form one of these nine therapies? Mm -hmm. So meditation for trauma specifically is a little bit of an interesting thing because when you are living with a trauma or you have PTSD, you are hypervigilant. The world does not feel safe to you. And for someone to tell you, okay, sit in one spot, close your eyes and focus on your breath. You're like, "Uh uh-uh, I cannot do that. That is terrifying. The world is not safe. And I, I give this analogy in my book, but imagine you as someone who is potentially not struggling with a trauma, asking or being asked to sit in a room and close your eyes. And you know that there's a person over here with a gun, a person over here with a knife and a person over here that's just smiling really creepily at you. You're not going to want to close your eyes because you can't see what's coming for you. And that's what it feels like as someone who's struggling with a trauma to try to meditate. Some people struggling with a trauma. So I do offer some meditation options in there. I talk about things like loving kindness meditation, transcendental meditation, and different options there and talk about how they help regulate the emotional system, calm down stress levels, and things like that. Pretty standard meditation things. But what I also really encourage people to do who are struggling with a trauma specifically is take a mindfulness-based approach. And what I mean by mindfulness is that you are training your brain to come back to a central thing. So you could be mindfully washing the dishes. You could be mindfully walking your dog, mindfully running up and down the stairs, whatever that is, just bringing your mind back to the present. And what that does is it trains your brain to do that when you're triggered. So when you're having a flashback or when you're being triggered, your brain knows, oh, okay, okay, I know how to come back. I know how to come back to reality, to the present moment, to calm back down. And that's really the goal of mindfulness or meditation for trauma survivors. Now, of course, if you fall somewhere in the middle, you could meditate with your eyes open or you could meditate while walking down the street, whatever that is, you know, make your adaptations as necessary. But the whole goal of that for me in that book is just to train your brain to come back when you're starting to dissociate or have a flashback or something like that. Now, for me in my own life, this wasn't something that I really knew about when I was struggling with my mental health. And I had heard about it, but I was like, oh, that's for like weird hippie yoga people. It wasn't something that I did, of course, because I'm oh so special in my non-yoganess. Um, but I heard about it, whatever. And then once I got really into my entrepreneurial journey, I had this one coach. She drove me up the wall when we were working together, but she was always pushing mindset stuff on me. She's like, Jess, you need to work on your mindset. You need to work on your mindset. All of the things that you do are not going to matter until you work on your mindset. And I'm like, Jacqueline, I just want the things. Give me the things to do. And she's like, do your mindset work. I'm like, okay, fine. Um, so that's really when I got introduced to the concept of mindfulness and meditation in my own life. Um, And so I started doing just a daily five minute meditation practice. Sometimes I do kind of a visualization on top of that, where I imagine 
my energy going out into the universe and bringing all good things back to me. Um, and then now I have kind of an affirmation meditation track. So I wrote out a bunch of affirmations for myself and then recorded myself saying them. So it's my voice. And then I'm just meditating and focusing on those words. And I do that every morning and night. So it's my, my mindfulness practice now. That makes me so happy to hear all of that. I just love it. I love it when people talk about their mindfulness and meditation practices. I'm just like, yes, another one on board. Amazing. <laughs> I love it. Yeah. It was just so transformative for me. And I really think that what you're saying about people who have suffered trauma, not feeling safe to close their eyes in their own body is so relatable because I think that so many people feel a version of that, even if, you know, it's on a far, far smaller scale. I think so many people are resistant to meditation because they're afraid of what will happen if they stop. They're afraid of what their brain will conjure up for them if they close their eyes and give themselves permission to just be. And it's actually pretty damn scary as a thought if you haven't done it before or you're not being guided by someone who you feel safe with. And also if you haven't practiced that feeling of being safe in your own body and feeling good in your own skin and that's kind of how I always describe it you know meditation helps you to be on your own side and be your own best supporter and feel safe in your own skin but if you are someone that suffered from trauma even getting to the point where you can sit down and even attempt to feel safe in your own skin is like a whole <laughs> like unreachable goal so mm -hmm. to start with mindfulness and just say hey just mindfully walk your dog or just like mindfully walk down the stairs or that's such a powerful way in to the practice I love that mm -hmm. and it's so almost stupidly simple too it's like just focus on what you're doing you know but that's hard it's really hard, especially if you're someone who's even an inkling of an academic because your brain is going a million miles an hour at all times. And so to kind of watch those thoughts as they go by and instead come back to where you are is really, really difficult for a lot of people. It was so hard for me, so hard for me. Five minutes of meditation, I was like, I can't get five seconds of uninterrupted meditation and this is ridiculous, but it's another muscle that you train. It's just like doing bicep curls or running or whatever. You have to train your brain to calm down and come back in the present moment. So for anyone who's potentially thinking about starting a mindfulness or meditation journey, I always tell them, I'm like, just give yourself some grace as you're starting. Start with five minutes. Recognize you're probably not even going to get five seconds. To just come back over and over and over again, whether that's to washing the dishes, folding the laundry, or actually doing a meditation practice. But just start small and just constantly bring your brain back and you'll be able to go for longer and longer times the more that you practice it. Yeah, 100%. And I would also say to people that even if they do get distracted 17 billion times a minute, it doesn't matter because that's still building the muscle. Like you say, it's the mm -hmm. bicep curl. So actually almost, I kind of love meditation because it's the only thing that I know of that the more that you quote unquote fail at it, the better you're actually doing. Like that's what's building the muscle, the new pathways in your brain that's how it works. That's, that's it. That's it. <laughs> I love it. I love it. I'm going to use that. The more you fail at meditation, the better you're doing. <laughs> it's so true. It's so true. And I kind of tried to say that to people because 
it just gives them a free pass. It's like, literally, you can't fail at it. Just keep trying. As soon mm -hmm. as you remember that you're supposed to be meditating, you know, even if you've been distracted for the last 10 minutes, that instance, that second where you remember, ah, oh, shit, I'm supposed to be meditating. That is, <laughs> that's the goal. That's the practice. Kind of mm -hmm. like, yeah. And Absolutely. Now, you know, the more you do it, the better that you get, the less distracted you get. And actually the more that you're able to kind of just focus at will. And again, if you're, if you're dealing with healing trauma as well, this idea that actually you are in control and you can bring yourself back and you're not just at the mercy of any thought that may pop into your head or whatever. Mm. And of course it takes work and I'm not suggesting that it's easy or that it's fast or simple or anything like that, but it's, I find it to be extremely reassuring to know that if you just keep trying day after day, minute by minute, breath by breath, actually you can affect small but significant change in how your body and your mind reacts to stress and situations. Mm -hmm. I think another thing that's great about mindfulness or meditation, whichever route you want to try, is that it's so easy to implement. You know, if you tell someone, okay, it's time to lose weight. You need to go to the gym for an hour and a half every single day. Like that's a huge commitment. But if you look at someone and you're like, just meditate for five minutes, five minutes before you go to bed, everyone has five minutes. So it's really, really accessible in that way. And that's something that I love about it. It's not this giant thing you have to add onto your already full plate. It's just five little minutes and it'll make a huge difference in your life. Totally. I mean, scientific studies, like proper peer-reviewed scientific journal studies, have shown that you can actually see measurable changes in the brain by people doing eight weeks of meditation, starting with just 10 minutes a day. I mean, obviously you can do much longer than that, but literally if you start with five minutes and work up to 10 minutes, that's enough to affect visible change in the brain and when i say visible i mean like on fmri scans they're mm -hmm. able to see your brain changing and then that in itself obviously is then felt in benefits in terms of how you react to stress or how compassionate you are depending on the kind of meditation that they're studying um mm -hmm. when i learned that it like quite literally blew my mind i was like what are you serious like you can actually see it on a scan like that's insane it is <laughs> I think it was with transcendental meditation and correct me if I'm wrong, but there was a study on that type of meditation specifically where it was like four days of intensive meditation and then never doing it again. You can still see benefits from those four days a year later. So just get started and it sticks with you. Of course, the people who did it more frequently saw more benefits, but like you could still see changes a year later after just four days of doing it intensively and then never doing it again. So it's a crazy powerful thing. I don't think anyone understands exactly how it works or why it works as well as it does, but it's such a simple tool to have in your toolbox that can make huge changes for you. Yeah, I love that you describe it as a toolbox because that's what I always say. I always say, you know, I didn't grow up with an emotional toolbox. Like my toolbox literally had like wine and gin and chocolate in it. <laughs> that was it, you know? Oh my gosh, yes. Mine was heavily stocked with chocolate as well, so I hear that. <laughs> Don't get me wrong, it still has those things in it, but it also has other things in it too. <laughs> Thankfully. Amen. Amen. So I also wanted to talk to you about what we spoke about at the beginning, which is this idea of spending time in nature. And I know that you also talk in your book about um, I'm gonna pronounce this wrongly, but equine-based therapies, mm -hmm. like working with horses as well as with dogs. Um, 
So let's start with the dogs because I'm obsessed with dogs and I really want to get one. So can you just humor me and explain to me what canine assisted therapy is and how it helps? Yes, absolutely. So canine assisted therapy is, as the name describes, the addition of a dog into the therapy practice. And the therapy itself often looks similar to talk therapy, but the dog is used as either an icebreaker or a way to calm down. So for someone who's very hesitant to open up to their therapist, they don't want to talk about their story, having a dog in there that does funny things sometimes or that they can snuggle with, you know, even just those little basic things can be really, really helpful. It is also a great way, you know, when you start to open up about your trauma, you don't want to dive too quickly and re-traumatize yourself. And so having a dog there that you're like, okay, pet the dog, breathe with the dog, groom the dog, massage the dog, interact with the dog, that can kind of slow down that process and allow your story to come out at a safe rate. You can also do things like, we're going to go on a walk with the dog. So you get the benefits of therapy, dogs, movement, and nature, all of those things at once. And for our finally, dogs are just really welcoming. I mean, I don't know, you're probably like me because you like dogs as much as I do, but if I go to a party and there's a dog there, I'm going to say hi to the dog first, and then I'm going to talk to the dog all night and pretty much ignore the people. So dogs are just really, really welcoming, and they're a great way to kind of break the ice between this really daunting process of therapy and someone who really wants help. Now, there's kind of three types of dogs that are used for mental health. I guess we'll say that. The first is an emotional support animal, and that is a pet. It's someone's pet that makes them feel better simply by existing. They don't have the same access to places as service dogs do, um, so they are distinctly a pet. That's what they are. They're great, but they're a pet. The kind of middle level, I guess, is a therapy dog, and that is a dog that is owned by the therapist, and they have been trained. They've gone through a class or a certification program in how to be a therapy dog. They also don't have the same kind of legislative or legal abilities that service dogs do. Service dogs are the final group, and they are owned by the handler, by the person who's struggling with a certain illness or ailment. And they are trained to do a specific task for that person. So for a trauma survivor, it could be alerting them when their emotions start to get out of control or waking them up from a nightmare if they're having a nightmare in the middle of the night. And these dogs are not considered pets, they're considered working animals. And they are allowed to go everywhere the human is, uh, but they do obviously have to be well-behaved and things like that. So that's kind of an overview of therapy dogs. If you're working with a therapy dog at therapy, it's gonna be one of those certified therapy dogs, someone who's been through training. It's probably not gonna be a service dog or an ESA. Um, but yeah, there's so many people that use service dogs, I'm, I'm sorry, use therapy dogs. That if you just do, again, a Google search for like canine assisted therapy near me, you're going to come up with a lot of results for ways that you can incorporate a dog into your therapy practice. That's incredible. What an amazing thing. And how, how accessible does therapy sound if it's like, oh, there's going to be a dog there? Yeah, you can snuggle the dog. You don't even have to look at me. You can just look at the dog and then tell me stuff. It's like, I can do that. <laughs> yeah, how incredible. I haven't heard much about that in the UK. Maybe it's just... I need to just do more Googling and find out. But I think that's something that we could stand to have a lot more of here. Mm -hmm. I would look at your universities because I actually went to a year of university in Scotland. Um, so I'm somewhat familiar with the UK education system, but a lot of universities, at least in the US, they will bring in therapy dogs as like stress relievers during exam weeks and things like that. So it might be worth kind of starting there if you or anyone who's a listener is looking for canine assisted therapy, it might be worth starting with the university. Yeah, that's incredible. Thank you for those tips. Wow. I love that. And what about if we are just a dog owner and we have a pet? Is there a way that we can start to maybe 
get some of the mental health benefits just from our own dog? Yeah. I mean, simply by having them there, there are loads of physiological and psychological health benefits. Things like um, decreased stress levels, decreased risks of obesity, because you have to walk the dog. Um, but there's all these different health benefits um, that can come with just simply owning a dog and interacting with them and snuggling with them at night and playing with them. Um, I know, speaking from personal experience, just my dog, when she, when I walk in the door, she just is so excited and her butt's wiggling and she's panting and she's giving me kisses. And there's just nothing that feels better in the world than having that. So just that little boost, you know, that you get throughout the day is, is so powerful. So yeah, having your own dogs can be huge for your mental health as well. Oh my gosh. I love that. I think it's just, they, they're just so non-judgmental and it mm-hmm. just remind it reminds me of that quote that I saw. Oh, I don't know where I saw it, but it's this it's it's such a bumper sticker quote, but I love it. It's just like, be the person that your dog thinks that you are. I'm pretty sure I've seen that on a bumper sticker, so you're right. <laughs> I would put it on everything. If I had a dog, it would be like on my pillow. It would probably be like on the fridge. <laughs> like, yeah. Um, I, I seriously can't wait for the day that I get a dog. I mean, obviously, it's not a one-way relationship. It's also about you making sure that you give that dog the best life possible. But I also think that that in itself is really powerful because I think as well if you're really struggling with your mental health and you're feeling really anxious and depressed you can really get stuck inside your own head and to, to have a dog that you have to like keep alive I've heard people say that that is sometimes the only reason that they got out of bed that day and then they realized mm-hmm. actually it gave them a reason to keep getting out of bed and that in itself is I don't know I just find that kind of moving and powerful mm-hmm. absolutely I mean, if you're living on your own, I wouldn't recommend getting a dog to cure you of your mental health struggles because, of course, you have to take care of that dog as well. But I've had people the same way, you know, like, oh, dog has to be fed. I have to get out of bed. Oh, dog has to be walked. I have to go outside today. And they don't ask for much, you know, love them and give them their basic necessities. And they're going to be so happy just to be with you. So I am all for dogs, all of the dogs all the time. But yeah, they're really, really powerful for mental health. Like, isn't that such a perfect metaphor as well? Like, oh, they need to be fed they need to have enough water they need to go outside it's like oh I need these things too (laughs) actually like let's both go outside and I might feel a little bit better like I'm not suggesting that you can cure you know trauma or PTSD or mental health problems by just going for a walk but I think that when you look at these things kind of in context or if you look at them as part of like we've been saying your wider emotional toolbox it's kind of like oh actually, these are things that I can do in my day-to-day life that might help. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, I think it's a little bit overly optimistic to say that one thing can just cure mental health or mental illness. And I don't think you can cure it. It's something you have to keep up throughout your whole life, right? Um, But there's all these little things. Sure, going on a walk might not cure you, but it's a step. And it's a step in the right direction. And it's going to help in the moment and carry on for a little bit more. And then you go on another walk the next day and the next day and the next day. And it just builds and builds and builds. So yeah, I totally agree. 100%. So I completely agree with you that mental health or mental illness, I should say, is something that you can kind of cure. I genuinely believe that it's something you need to do every day. Like I always say with meditation, you don't, you're not just going to do it one day and then you're done like forever. I genuinely believe that it's something that you have to do nearly every day and it's a practice and it's you know like making your bed or brushing your teeth you have to do it every day for it to maintain effectiveness however you did mention at the beginning that 
part of your book addresses the idea, okay, cool, well, we've reached the end of our healing or we've done our therapy sessions or whatever. And there is a point where you can say that you are healing or that you have healed. What does that look like? And how does that square with this idea that it's a constant process? Mm -hmm. So my definition and kind of the widely accepted definition of being healed from trauma is that your trauma no longer controls your life. You can go to the grocery store, you can sit and close your eyes and meditate, you can get in a car again after your car accident, whatever that is, you're not stuck and terrorized by your trauma anymore. But it doesn't mean that your trauma is completely gone from your life, you never think about it again, and everything is all hunky-dory from here on out. I'm actually arguing that it's better that it doesn't just completely go away. Because I think when you've been through a trauma, you have this completely new level of empathy and compassion and strength that just comes from surviving something so terrible, you know? And you wouldn't have that if you didn't have that trauma. So sure, being in the moment and being like, it's all going to be great at the end is not super helpful. But when you're at the end, you're like, oh, I can still keep these little pieces and these little memories and recognize that it proves that I'm strong and that I can empathize and that I can love and that I can overcome. And I think that's really powerful as well. The other thing is that there's certain life events that might trigger parts of your trauma that you haven't had yet. So if your trauma is based in domestic abuse or sexual assault or whatever from when you were a child, and then you get married, that could trigger some things for you. But there's no way that you could have healed those things without being married. So there's going to be certain things in your life, certain life events, either good or bad, that come up that might unleash other parts of your trauma. And you're like, oh, okay, got to go back and heal this again. It doesn't mean that you haven't healed. It doesn't mean that everything you've done is worthless or ineffective. It just means you get to heal at a little bit of a deeper level that you couldn't have healed at all those years or months or weeks ago, whenever that healing was for you. But in short, healing from trauma and being healed from trauma means that it doesn't control your life anymore. You are no longer a slave to it. It is just a piece of you that you can bring out and discuss and whatever when necessary. Yeah, I think that's a really useful definition to kind of and also to know that actually it is possible to reach a point where you aren't going to be controlled by it which I imagine when you're starting the journey feels like totally impossible mm -hmm. absolutely I mean whatever your mental health struggle is when you're in the trenches of it it's like well this is it it's either going to kill me or it's going to be this way for the rest of my life and to know that it, that doesn't have to be the case sure it's going to take work but to know that that doesn't have to be the case is really really powerful for a lot of people yeah, something that you said as well in the answer to that question was really reminded me of uh, the work of David Kessler. Um, so he was the co-writer, or I'm not sure if he, if he would be the co-writer, but maybe the co-creator, or he was just working with um, Kubler-Ross when she wrote um, the, five, the Five Stages of Grief. And recently, in a a Harvard Business Insider uh, article that went completely viral on the internet. He, he basically said that he had added a sixth stage of grief, a sixth stage of, of dealing with what you might call grief or trauma, in that it was the sixth stage's meaning, is actually ascribing meaning to what's happened to you. But what I found really interesting in an interview that I heard with him is that meaning doesn't mean that everything happens for a reason. And I'm so glad that this terrible thing happened to me. And, you know, I'm on the other side of it now. And I, you know, I wouldn't change it for the world. I learned so much. But having said that, I found it really interesting what you said in that having suffered the trauma 
and processed it and healed through whatever therapy has worked for you or multiple therapies, you actually come out of it, like you say, with, with greater compassion for yourself and maybe for others as well. And that to me is kind of one of the silver linings in this like big black cloud of trauma or mental illness. Cause it's like actually going through these things and healing from them. Actually, there are lessons that we can learn. We do usually end up being more compassionate to ourselves or to others. And that might hold us in good stead. Like you say, for future events that haven't even happened yet that we actually need to, to heal from like in future. I love that you brought that up about, oh, everything has meaning. Everything happens for a reason sort of thing. I hate that mindset. I think it's so toxic. I think it's so unhelpful, especially when you're in the middle of something. But my, I guess, adaptation on that belief is that you can find a benefit in anything. So for me, looking back at my mental health struggles, I would have never wished that on anyone. I don't want anyone to have to struggle like that. I don't want anyone to have to go through a trauma. But I wouldn't have the career that I have now if I didn't go through that. I wouldn't be able to have the relationships and the depth of relationships that I have now if I didn't go through that. I wouldn't care nearly as much about mental health if I didn't go what I went go through what I went through. So yeah, telling me in the middle of it, oh, everything happens for a reason, I probably would have slapped someone. But looking back on it now, it's like, wow, I can pull really good things from this and I can use this horrible thing for good in my life instead of allowing it to stay this black mark on my record, if you will. Yeah, totally. And I think it's it's such a fine balance between exactly what you've just said. And also, of course, nobody would wish that on anyone. You wouldn't wish to have trauma. You wouldn't wish to have problems or for something terrible to happen in your life. But to know that actually there is a way out of it and there is another side. I think that's kind of a much more hopeful message than saying to someone like, it's going to all be okay in the end. It's like, that's not very helpful right now. <laughs> yep. Yeah. It's like, I need to know that it's okay to not be okay right now. And sure, it might be okay later, but right now it's not. And I need you to honor that. And I need you to acknowledge that. So yeah, it's, it's definitely interesting. And you know what you said about how it, um, you wouldn't wish trauma on anyone. Unfortunately, there's studies out there that say about 70% of people will experience a trauma during their lifetimes. So 70% of people, that is the majority of people. So, you know, whether you'd wish it on someone or not, it's going to happen to a lot of people. And for it to become common knowledge that there are some silver linings and that this can turn into something good, maybe 20 years down the road, but down the road, you know, that's really powerful. And I think that's something that needs to be brought to light a little bit more. It was really interesting for me when I was healing, I guess when I was done healing, I'd say, and moving into kind of the personal development side of my life. I thought, okay, cool. You know, I'm going to grow this business. I'm going to do all these things. I'm going to have this great life, whatever. But I don't want to talk about this over here. I don't want to talk about my mental health. It's ugly. It's shameful. I just want to kind of shove it under the rug. And I really resented that part of my life. And I finally came to a point, I was like, Jess, you can't grow and still resent a part of yourself at the same time. You have to somehow merge them and accept that part of yourself. And that's when I really got on this kind of career path was when I realized that that wasn't something to be ashamed of, but something that I could use as a platform for entrepreneurship broadly, but also for connection and for love and for relationships and communication. So I'm totally resonating with everything you're saying right now. Yeah, I think that's so true. It's like building on it. It's like using it as the foundation. And like mm -hmm. I say, I think that it means that you have so much more compassion 
And I really love what you said about how it allows you now to have much deeper relationships than you ever would have done. Cause that's true in my life as well. It's like, it's that, it's just the old kind of like cliche, like treat people how you wish that you want to be treated. But if you know what it's like to be suffering or to, to have mental health issues, you're able to be so much more compassionate to other people as well. Cause you know what that's like. Yeah. I think it's mm-hmm. cool. And I think as well, you know, everyone knows that, oh, the more vulnerable you are in relationships, the deeper relationships you are, you know, surface level things are not super deep, but to have gone through something to heal from something and then to no longer be ashamed of that thing, then you can be vulnerable with that. You can open up about that. You can talk about that either directly or indirectly. And that takes that concept of vulnerability to a whole new level and gives you just the most incredible relationships where you have the opportunity to be supported, but also support that other person because they know you know what it's like to struggle. So I am all for owning your story of owning your mental health struggles and then allowing that to give you those deep relationships that you're craving. Yeah, a hundred percent. Awesome. Okay. So I did want to ask you about how did you get into search and rescue with your dog? Because we've talked about compassion when I found out that that's what you do, I mean, you say it on your website, I was like, wow, what a compassionate thing to do. How, how did you get into doing that? Yeah, well, it's actually tied into my mental health story. So we're right on track here. So my, when I was in college, my original career, or not, I guess not my original, but my, the career I wanted to go into was as a pararescueman, which is a member of the US Air Force Special Operations Community. And they're a trauma paramedic and a search and rescue specialist. And when I found this career field, I was like, this is it. I felt so at home. I felt like, yep, this is it. This is what I want to do. But unfortunately, I was ineligible for military service because of my mental health history. So I had the option to either lie on the enlistment papers, which apparently a lot of people do, but it was something that I was really struggling with from an ethical perspective, or stay true to my morals and give up my dream. And I chose to walk away from that career field because I didn't want to lie. I didn't want to start something so good and so pure on a lie. Um, And I was like, okay, well, how do I still get that same thing? Like, how do I still do that in the civilian world sort of thing? And I've always loved dogs. You know, I had a dog growing up. And so I was like, oh, okay, well, search and rescue. I can do the medical piece. I can be out in nature. I can save people's lives. And I get to do it with my best friend. I get to work with a dog. So that kind of kicked that into motion. And then I met her, my dog, and it was just this super random connection. So when I got my childhood dog, I was five, and we went and I was sitting in this litter of puppies, playing with all the puppies, and his sister came up, crawled in my lap, and rolled over and looked at me, and I was like, oh my gosh, dad, can we please get her? My dad was like, no, we need to get a boy. So I told myself that the next time a little puppy did that, crawled in my lap, and rolled over backwards, I was going to take him or her home. And so I went to go meet Phoebe and her brother and her breeder just to kind of learn about the breed and ask some questions and get some puppy snuggles and stuff like that. And this stupid little stinker ran out of her crate, crawled up in my lap and rolled over and looked to me. And I was like, damn it, (laughs) I got to get you now. So it was just such a fluke. And she's been my shadow since day one. But yeah, we are currently training for our air scent certification, which means that we go out into the woods and find lost people out there. So air scent works by her following the scent particles that are coming on the air, coming directly from the person, as opposed to the dogs that follow in the footsteps of where that person went. So she's more of where the crow flies, whereas other dogs are, you know, following step by step the path that the person took. 
So it's about a two year certification process to get that certification, just with all the training you have to do with your dog. Um, and we are almost a year into that. So we're about halfway through right now. So it's, it's so much fun. It's really cool because I get to still be the medical team lead on missions because I have my EMT's license um, and work with my dog and be outdoors and stuff like that. So I think everything worked out for the better and I would not have her if I went into the military. And like I said, she's my best friend. So crazy story, but that's kind of how I got into where I am and what we do and things like that. Wow, that's incredible. So how does it work then? Like once you guys are qualified, will you be kind of on call? Will people say, hey, you know, there's somebody that's been reported missing. They went on a hike. We need you. Is that how it works? Yeah, pretty much. So search and rescue volunteers are on call 24 seven and almost all of our calls happen on holiday weekends, which is great, right? Because that's when everyone goes out into the woods. Um, But yeah, the sheriff's associations for each county, they run search and rescue. So the sheriff's association would get a call saying, my husband went hiking and hasn't come home or whatever. And then if they needed to, they'd mobilize a search and rescue response, which often includes a combination of communications teams that run the radios, um, ground searchers that are out, you know, literally searching as they walk, and then also canine teams. And sometimes there's four by four teams and things like that, but that's kind of the core group there. So yeah, we'll get a call from the Sheriff's Association that says, hey, any canine handlers available? And then we respond and go out and do our thing. Wow, that's amazing. I actually went to live in, well, live is a bit strong. I stayed in Portland, (laughs) Oregon for a, about three and a half weeks a couple of years ago because my partner was working at offices in Hillsborough and so I live in Hillsborough yeah so, <laughs> so that's where he was working and we stayed uh in the hills basically above Portland mm-hmm. and uh one weekend we went kind of deeper in to Oregon and went uh hiking and we I think there's I can't remember what it's called it's like the Ten Falls hike it's quite a famous hike in the area and it's like a hike that takes in 10 different waterfalls okay I think it's it's the area called Silver Falls I think that's where okay yep yeah I know where that is yeah yeah and like you know I I don't have any knowledge of of canine search and rescue thank goodness I didn't need it (laughs) but just I love just talking about what you're doing and and helping people that might be out hiking in that beautiful part of the world in the Pacific Northwest and yeah that's just like my little story but just like to just to hear you talk about helping and and being out there and like I just find it so compassionate like thank you for sharing your story and thank you for doing that yeah thank you as well it's it's a pleasure to do it's fun to do even when you're out in the woods and it's pouring down rain and like 45 degrees Fahrenheit I don't know what that is in Celsius um but yeah cold not not warm um so no I mean I'm glad I have the opportunity to do it there's great people great dogs and just a really good way to give back as well amazing okay so let's let's quickly I'm conscious of time but let's also talk about the value of being outside and you talked about nature therapy and you know it's slightly a selfish question as well because like I say I spent some time in the Pacific Northwest and I loved it and we were super lucky with the weather as well like I know that it rains a lot in Portland but when we were there it was beautiful sunshine so I am not complaining Uh, (laughs) and, and I just thought it was absolutely stunning and I think anyone that's spent any time outdoors knows that it can just have this magical ability to make you feel better so as someone that writes about therapy can you explain in more detail about what that looks like nature therapy 
Mm-hmm. Absolutely. Well, like you said, nature is almost magical. And I think I use that term in my book as well, but in its ability to heal. There are so many studies that say nature can help with pretty much anything physiological or mental. You know, there's just so many benefits it can do. So spending time outdoors obviously taps into those benefits. But ecotherapy specifically is the use of awareness and metaphors in nature to heal and to, I guess, describe your emotions successfully and open up about your story. So for example, the ecotherapist that I interviewed for my book, she was telling me about her client and they were out in nature sitting by a creek and on the opposite side of the creek were these two big boulders and a little boulder squished in the middle of them. And this client was really struggling to open up. She couldn't really find the words or anything like that, but she looked at those boulders and she looked at that boulder in the middle and she says, that's what my life feels like. That's what it feels like. And Amy, the ecotherapist, immediately knew how she felt because she could see that in front of her. And it was just a really good way to open up about what was going on, to recognize patterns and feelings in your own life and be able to begin that discussion. You know, when it's, it's something like trauma, partly because it's so somatic, but also because it's so traumatic, um, it's really hard to put it into words, right? You can sit here and say, oh, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm hurt, I'm whatever. But what if you could go out and say, I feel like that waterfall, it's raging, it's screaming, it feels like that. Or I feel at home and at peace in the middle of these trees because they're so strong and it gives me hope that I can be that strong and rooted as well. So the ability for nature to come in as that co-therapist with obviously the benefits that it provides, but also just the metaphors and the peacefulness and the emotion and the evocation of emotion is really, really powerful as well. Now, there's also this thing that's kind of funny. It's called indoor ecotherapy, and it basically is bringing nature elements indoors. So paintings, little bubbling brook fountain things, um, sandboxes, pine cones, plants, opening the window, things like that. That's really used for people who aren't able to go really out into nature. So for example, cancer patients, they just don't have the energy to go out on a hike, for example. So you can bring them into office and do things like that. And it's really interesting because the original studies on the psychological benefits of nature were done with paintings of trees. They weren't done with actual nature. And so it's like, whoa, indoor ecotherapy actually works. And then you get all these more benefits just by actually going outdoors and breathing in the air and moving and being in trees or in a park or at the beach or whatever that is. But yeah, it is, I guess, my favorite therapy from the book, just because it's something that I use so frequently on, on my own, you know, is being outdoors in nature and just using nature to describe what you're feeling, you know, and, and having that discussion and opening up and, and identifying with various elements of nature is, is so much more powerful than just sitting there and saying, I'm sad, I'm angry, I'm whatever you're feeling right now. Yeah, that's amazing. I hadn't thought of it in terms of a metaphor like that. Yeah, I love that. I mean, when I do guided meditations, quite often when I'm talking to people about kind of setting themselves up and kind of sitting in a good meditation posture, I do usually, or I often use nature metaphors. So I'll say, you know, imagine that you're it kind of sounds cliched, but it does work. People say that they love the, the visual. Just imagine that you're a tree and that you're you're grounded and balanced and that you're rooted where you're sitting. And also then imagine that you're sitting upright and that your your head is kind of the leaves and you're you're free and you know you can and it just something about it just makes people feel rooted and grounded and calm and open. And there's just something about using 
nature metaphors that, like I say, just feel calming. Mm -hmm. And it's a different level of communication too. You know, when you were describing that tree in your head being the branches, I was like, oh, I know exactly what to do with that. I know exactly what to envision. But if you were like, imagine that your head can just kind of flow back and forth. I'd be like, what does that mean? You know, so having that visual, whether you're just imagining it or literally seeing it in nature is a really, really powerful way to communicate. Yeah, totally. It just reminds me of, there's so many actually, now that we're thinking about it, meditation, nature metaphors, like thinking about the blue sky, you know, your thoughts are the weather, but behind the clouds there's always a blue sky like just so so many things like or for example you don't blame yourself for the weather you don't look outside and think well it's my fault that it's raining you just think well that's just life you know I I can't control the weather any more than I can feel bad about what thoughts I might find in my brain but you know that doesn't mean that I need to beat myself up about it or what you know it's there's so many metaphors in meditation to do with nature and I don't think I don't think it's an accident. (laughs) I agree. I agree. And it's just, I have this thing called therapy hikes that are not actual therapy, but it's just when you go on a hike and you are screaming and crying and raging the whole way up the hill and it's just this emotional catharsis and you get to the top and you're like, and you can just breathe and you come out the woods a completely different person than you went in. And There are some days where I have these fun hikes and we're just like going up the hill and it's all good. And then there's other days where I literally cry the whole way up the hill and you come out and you're like, wow, I needed that. And there was no better individual broadly to hold the space for me than nature. You know, it just, it's amazing and incredible. And I truly believe that nature has its own spirit and its own being. And, you know, it's not just a bunch of trees. It's something collective. Totally. Totally. I mean, I could go on talking about more nature metaphors I mean (laughs) often when I give people uh, personalized guided meditations one of the visualizations that people tell me they love is imagining that they're hiking up a mountain and when they get to the top of the mountain um, they feel energized and there's the sun shining down on them Uh, or even just the metaphor like keep going one foot in front of the other that's all you can do you know even something as kind of cliched as that I still think it rings true like still helps me. (laughs) Mm -hmm. Absolutely. When I was starting my, I guess, mindfulness and meditation journey, one of the things that I do is I'd meditate for five minutes and concentrate on my breath and then do a visualization exercise of like walking myself through my ideal day in my brain and hiking up a hill and getting to the top and looking at the view was one of those images in my brain. And it was just, I could feel myself being at the top of that hill, just even lying in bed doing that visualization. You feel the breeze and you see the views and you stand up straight. I'm even sitting up straighter right now, but you have all of this just from a simple visualization and then imagine the power that can happen when you actually get out in nature and do it. Heck yeah. I love that. And it's a really crappy day here in London after like two, <laughs> two weeks of beautiful sunshine we've had. And it's like the first crappy day and I'm like, Oh, I need to go outside. <laughs> I need to explore. But anyway, um, yeah, like I say, I could talk about that for days, but I do want to ask you, we, you've talked about it a lot and maybe you have nothing more to add, which is totally cool, but what are the other forms of daily habits or tools that are in your toolbox right now? I mean, you've spoken about visualization, you've spoken about spending loads of time with your dog, which is awesome, but do you have, like, say, a morning routine or 
And I know you, actually you did talk about your affirmations. So like maybe you have nothing more to add, but I would just love to know if there's anything else in your kind of like daily routine that helps you continue your healing journey and stay kind of sane. Yeah. So I do have more to add. Um, so I do have my, my affirmation guided meditation thing that I do morning and night. And then I also have a journaling practice that I do in the morning and at the night as well. In the morning, I write down two affirmations, which resonate with me that day. Usually it's something about entrepreneurship and making money and then also being worthy of my dreams. Um, and then I write down three of my goals as thank yous, like they've already happened. So I'm so thankful that BB passed her air sense certification. Or I'm so thankful that I made a million dollars this year or whatever it is for me that day. And then I, in the morning, I also write my intention for the day. So today I intend to do whatever. And sometimes it's a thing, like I intend to send out 20 podcast pitches or it's, some, it's like a feeling. I intend to be happy. I intend to love myself, whatever that is. And then at night before I go to bed, I write down three things that I was grateful for that day. And I try to make them different every day. So every single day, I'm grateful for my dog. But I don't write my dog every single day. It's like something specific that happened. Um, so I have that practice. And then I go hiking usually like three or four times a week. I go hiking a lot. And obviously, it's great exercise and it's being outdoors. But it also just allows me the time to get away and to slow down and recognize that like, hey, I'm taking three or four hours out of the middle of my workday to go hiking because it makes me feel good. It gets my dog tired so I can actually work later in the day. Um, and it really is just good for my soul. And that kind of mindset shift from, I have to work, I have to work, I have to work, to no, it's okay to take this break. It's okay to go spend time doing what makes your soul happy. Um, I think that's definitely something that's been really beneficial for me as well. Wow, I love that. There's so many like practical tips in there. And especially journaling as well. I, I have an on-off relationship with journaling and I don't know why I don't just carry on doing it because whenever I do it, I just feel a billion times better and everything just flows better in my life. And then I just fall off the wagon. And I don't know why, because I meditate every single day. So why can't I just journal every single day? But I love that you had some really practical tips there on exactly what you write down and exactly what you do morning and night. I think that's, that's brilliant. Thank you for sharing. Yeah, for sure. So we're reaching the end of my questions. Uh, this is kind of a weird kind of like left field one, but I would love to know what you think. So obviously my business is called Breathe Like a Badass. And I know what badass means to me and what badass means in my business. But what does being a badass mean to you? <sighs> I've thought about this question literally so many times in my life because that is something I aspire to be. And for the longest time, I identified that with your career choices, like, oh, I'm going into the military special operations. I'm totally a badass. You're like, oh, I do search and rescue. I'm a badass. I'm a martial arts instructor. I'm a badass, whatever that is. Um, and I think that's true. But I think in general, being a badass means doing something that other people are not willing to do, like going that one step further that people, most people won't do because it's too hard, because it's too dangerous, because it's too scary. But for you to say, no, this is important to me for whatever reason, I'm going to take that one step further and do it. I think that makes you a badass. Oh my God. I love that. That's awesome. <laughs> and I love how I just totally threw that question at you and you hadn't pre-prepared it or anything and you just completely knocked it out of the park. Amazing. <laughs> I love it. Thank you. <laughs> so second to last question is literally just, is there anything that I should have asked you that I haven't, that you would like to just introduce to the conversation? Uh, I think you really covered it. I mean, we talked a lot about the different therapies in my book about trauma in general. This could be a whole other discussion in itself, but I guess the only other thing that I would add that we touched on briefly is this concept of holding the space and how to help someone else who's struggling with their mental health. 
that's what I speak about a lot because I think it's often a easier approach into the world of mental health to be like, oh, no, 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 I'm fine. I'm just helping someone else, right? It kind of gets people in the door to acknowledging that mental health is important. But the concept of holding this space just means that you are not trying to fix them. You're not trying to say the perfect words. You're just simply being there for them and making them feel valid in their emotions and what they're going through and supporting them if they need it or just sitting with them if they need it. And one of my favorite phrases for that, you know, if someone comes to you and says, I'm struggling with X, Y, and Z, whatever, is to just say, I hear you and I'm here for you. I hear you, meaning I acknowledge what you told me. I receive that. I honor you. And then also I hear you and I'm here for you, right? That second piece, I'm here for you. How do you need me to help? How can I be there for you? I'm on your side. I am your teammate and I'm here to sit with you in your darkness if you need it. But very brief overview of holding the space. But I think that's also a really critical piece of this whole trauma discussion as well. Absolutely. And that's something that you said you talk about in the last part of your book as well. Mm -hmm. Okay, fantastic. Well, that's the perfect time for me to say, if people want to find out more about you, if they want to go ahead and buy your book and reach out to you and connect with your work, how do they do that? Where should they go? Definitely. So I am on Facebook and Instagram at Jesse Bayer International. That's Jesse with an I and Bayer with a B-E. And then you can actually go ahead and download the first three chapters of my book for free on my website at jessiebuyerinternational.com forward slash chapters. And that'll tell you more about my story. It'll tell you about trauma and then some of the psychiatric diagnoses surrounding it. So it's a little taste into the book and you can obviously get the book on my website as well if you want the whole thing. Amazing. And I actually also saw, and let me know if this is no longer true, but on your website, (laughs) are you offering signed copies of your book too? Yes, you can get a signed copy if you want one. That's exciting. I love that. (laughs) A little extra special thing that you can't get if you just order it off Amazon or whatever. (laughs) Absolutely. Brilliant. Okay, cool. And so you said that you're on Facebook. Uh, Is that the best uh, platform to find you on? Yeah, Facebook or Instagram. I'm active on both of those. So feel free to pop on, say hi, send me a picture of your dog. I will always be okay with that. So yeah. Oh my gosh. I love that. Okay. And obviously (laughs) I'll put links to all of this in um, the show notes on my website. Um, so people can find out more. Amazing. Thank you so much. This has been such an incredible discussion. Thank you so much for having me. It was really great to chat with you. If you enjoyed this podcast, the best way to support it is to hit subscribe and leave a review on Apple Podcasts or wherever you usually listen so that many other like-minded women just like you and me can discover it and share the word. I'd also absolutely love it if you could let me know what your favorite takeaway was from this week's episode. Come and tag me on Instagram at breathe like a badass. You can take a screenshot of the podcast episode that you're listening to, or just come and drop me a DM because let's be honest, I'm on Instagram pretty much every single day and I would absolutely love to hear from you. Thank you so much for listening. As I say, the best way that you can continue to support podcasts like this and incredible women in business, just like the ones that I interview on this show, is to hit subscribe, leave a review and share. In the meantime, thank you again. And I cannot wait to see you back here for next week's episode. Just remember, breathe like the badass you are and you won't go far wrong.